Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 22nd of May. Welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Kat Arney. This week is a show definitely not to be sneezed at because we're talking about the science of allergies, including finding out why some people react so violently to peanuts and also hearing about a new way to actually stop this happening and how a dose of worms could keep allergic reactions in check in future. Cat. Lovely. And in this week's science news, how we're all born with a brain pre-wired to do geometry, why gossip affects the way we actually see people, and a big breakthrough for organ transplantation. Scientists have found out how to harness special cells that prevent the immune system from attacking donated tissues. And if you would like to send us any comments, questions or feedback, as always, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, you can write on our Facebook page, we've made it easy for you to get there, it's at nakedscientists.com slash Facebook, it will take you there, or you can drop us an email, the email address, as ever, chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And we're taking a look at some of the latest scientific discoveries from around the world, starting in the Amazon, Cat. Now, you may not be familiar with the name Euclid, but you're probably familiar with his ideas. More than 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece, Euclid laid down the foundations of basic geometry, such as the idea that two parallel lines never cross and that the angles inside a triangle always add up to a constant number. Know what that is, Chris? Let me think. 180 degrees. Yeah, well done. Have a biscuit. Uh, many of us will have learned these basic principles of geometry at school, although some philosophers have suggested that we actually get most of our grasp of geometry from looking at the world around us and moving around in it. Say, for example, by figuring out that the shortest way home is a straight line rather than a curved or a wiggly one. Now, to find out whether this idea is correct, some French psychologists took a field trip to the Amazon, which is nice for them, to find out how well the Mundaruku, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, they're a tribe of indigenous people who've got no formal schooling in maths, how they grasp the principles of Euclidean geometry. And how did they do that? Well, the researchers developed a series of tasks for adults and children from the tribe, and they asked them about lines drawn on a flat surface or on a sphere. So, for example, they asked them whether lines could be drawn between two points on the surface or whether parallel or non-parallel lines would ever cross. And to set the scene, um, they explained that the points were villages and the lines were paths between the two. So that's a concept that these tribesmen are very familiar with because they're experts at navigating around their landscape. Now, they also asked them to estimate estimate the third angle in an incomplete triangle to see whether the Munduruku people understood that the angles inside a triangle always add up to a constant number. And that's something that half of students doing GCSE can't do. How did they get on? Well, actually, they did really, really well, as, as well, in fact, as either French or American adults uh, or children given the same tasks who would have had a formal education in geometry. Now, this suggests that just figuring out your environment and learning how to get from place to place within it gives you a pretty good grounding in Euclidean principles without having to learn about it in the classroom. But intriguingly, when researchers tested very young children, say age five to six, they found that their grasp of geometry was a bit shakier. They had some of it right, but they hadn't quite figured it all out. So overall, it looks like we do have an intuitive grasp of some of the principles of basic geometry. And this is shaped by our learning and our interactions with the world around us as we grow up. And the bottom line being, we should therefore, what, stop doing geometry at school? Bad luck? No. <laughs> um, obviously, maths lessons do teach you a lot more than just these basics about lines and points and triangles. But it does tell us that actually we develop a lot of our sense of geometry through our experience of the world around us and that that fits in with what Euclid worked out. So maybe there's a better way of teaching geometry and maths. 
who knows? But what's still not explained is that the researchers found that the Mundaruka, as well as the, the French and American people they tested, they can understand concepts that are outside of the sphere of what you've actually physically experienced, of what you've seen or what you've done. So, in fact, there's some way that we're building our own theory of geometry that is, is outside our own experience, rather than just learning about it through a textbook. So that's something that needs exploring. Well, it's a bit like the guy who said he was watching his dog run along the shoreline while he threw sticks into the sea. And he did a little experiment and showed that the dog always took the shortest route to get to the stick. Um, and that was either running along the shore the right distance until it was directly adjacent to the stick in the water because it knew that uh, to run along the shore was easier. But then swimming through the water, if it got directly adjacent to the stick, was going to minimise the workload on the dog. So obviously even a, a, a more primitive animal has the right sort of neurological model for doing these sorts of calculations. Oh, yeah, Do dogs do trigonometry. I've, I've seen dogs chasing squirrels, and they, they know where the squirrel's going to be when they hit it. Up a tree, usually. <laughs> yeah. um, I wonder, just on the subject of these interesting tribes that are in the Amazon, there's actually a paper that came out this week. It's in um, the journal Language and Cognition from a University of Portsmouth researcher called Chris Sinha. I've only seen a, a brief overview of this, but what they were doing was studying this group called the Amondawa people. This is a tribe that actually have no concept, it would appear, in their language for time. There are no words for, for instance, day, week, month, year, or even the word time, and they just talk in terms of the division between day and night and the fact that there's a rainy season and a dry season. I would have thought that time would have been one of the fundamental things we would also, like your geometry story, have some kind of uh, sort of innate understanding of. Mm, yeah, at least even like lunchtime or tea time. Maybe they just go stuff that's happening now, stuff that's happened before and stuff that's happening in the future. It'd be really interesting to see that paper. Well, intriguingly, they also, uh, when they grow older, they change their names. So when a newborn comes along, the child who's the currently uh, incumbent newborn becomes the more senior child and changes its name and gives its name to the newborn. It's quite intriguing, isn't it? So you, you always have a new name. I wonder how they keep track of that. that Confusing. certainly is. <laughs> now, they say the first impressions last, and uh, it turns out that what uh, people say about you behind your back can also affect, to a certain extent, how people see you or perceive you. Now, they say that the process of gossiping is a little bit like the sort of human equivalent of picking fleas off of the back of a colleague in order to groom them. So it's sort of what humans do. We exchange juicy tidbits between us about other people or what's going on rather than picking fleas off each other. Um, but does this actually affect the way in which our brains then process information about the people we've been discussing? Well, that was what Lisa Barrett and her colleagues at Northeastern University in the US were wondering. They've published this work in the journal Science this week. It's really intriguing. They get a group of volunteers. They show them pictures of what are called neutral faces. So these are faces that are not pulling any kind of particular expression. And so they show them these faces and they pair with each face four times over a statement. And this statement is some social information. It will be either something negative, such as this person got stroppy and threw a chair across a room, or it's something neutral, like this person got up and closed the curtains, or it's something really positive, like this person helped an old person across the road a few times. And after they'd done that, they then did a memory test on these people just to check whether they actually learned the faces equivalently. And then they did what's called a binocular rivalry task and this is an old trick what you do is you put two images in front of the face one in front of each eye and because the brain is seeing two different images you have to choose which one you're going to pay attention to and they gave the subjects a button a and b and asked them to choose which of the two images they were seeing consciously at which time and they presented each of the faces that they'd shown with these social information statements, the good or bad ones, alongside a neutral picture of, say, a house. And they asked the subjects to tell them how long they were looking at each thing. And what was amazing is that they saw and perceived for much longer those faces that had been associated with negative, gossipy comments previously. If you'd heard something positive said about the face or something neutral said about the face, didn't make an iota of difference. It was just the negative comments that made that particular face get perceived in the brain for much longer and the brain paid much more attention to it. And they actually say in their paper, and I'll quote it because I can't put it better than they did, they say, this preferential selection for seeing bad people might protect us from liars and cheats by allowing us to view them for longer and explicitly gather more information about their behaviour. In other words, you learn something about them by watching them rather than having to get first-hand experience of their being nasty to you. 
Absolutely fascinating stuff. Also, this week, UK scientists have made a big step forward in the field of organ transplantation. And King's College London researcher Robert Leckler and his colleagues have found a way to purify a rare population of immune cells called Tregs, and that's short for regulatory T cells, that help to switch off immune responses against donor organs. And that could help to reduce the risk of rejection. Organ transplantation, I would say, uh, was one of the major successes of the second half of the last century in uh, the field of medicine because uh, it is life-saving very often and life-transforming almost always. And the success rates have improved steadily to the point that now when you have a kidney or a heart or a liver, uh, these organs succeed, are successfully accepted in around 90% of cases and give a real lift to the quality of life of the, of the patient. So it's a terrific success story. However, there are three problems. The first is the side effects and complications of the drugs that we have to give to make it work. And these are drugs called immunosuppressive drugs that cause blanket depression of the immune system so that the immune system doesn't attack the transplant. But it doesn't only depress the immune response to the transplant, it makes your immune system uh, less competent at protecting you against infections and it increases your risk of cancer. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that transplants tend to fail over time. So the average kidney transplant uh, from a dead donor would normally last around 10 or maybe 12 years, and then gradually they fail, and then, of course, the patient, if it's a kidney patient, goes back onto a kidney machine and waits for another transplant. If and is the reason not... for that failure, Robert, that there is, despite the immunosuppression, a gradual and inexorable damage being unleashed upon the donor tissue by the patient's immune system? Uh, That's a very good question, and the answer is partly yes. Actually, the causes of late transplant failure are quite complicated and involve several different body systems, but the immune system is definitely one of the drivers, you're right. So, And then the third limitation is, is the supply and demand problem, that the whole field of transplantation has been a victim of its own success, and so uh, we just can't keep up with the number of organs that are needed. And this is made worse by the organ failure business because, of course, kidney patients go back on dialysis, and so dialysis programs are filling up with patients who are waiting for their second or third transplant. So what is your solution? So we and many others around the world um, have been uh, working on the possibility of making the patient's immune system selectively blind, is one way to put it, uh, to the transplant. So the other language used is to make the patient tolerant, their immune system tolerant to the transplant, while leaving the immune system intact to protect the patient against infections and cancer. That would solve all three of the problems I've described because you wouldn't need long-term drugs, number one. Number two, um, this would probably limit the chronic transplant failure I mentioned and thirdly because transplant would last longer then it would help to address the supply and demand issue. And how can you do that? The, the, there are several approaches that are being explored. Uh, the one that we have taken is to exploit a population of white blood cells that we all have um, that we have in order to protect us from what are called autoimmune diseases when the immune system attacks self. Uh, and many chronic diseases are caused by autoimmune reactions, diabetes, for example, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis. These are autoimmune diseases. Most of, most of us don't get those diseases, and the reason is because we have this specialized population of white blood cells. They're called regulatory cells, or they're rather like policemen, that keep the immune system from attacking self. So what we, the question we posed is, could we take those cells and, if you like, divert their attention to regulate the response against the foreign bits of a transplanted organ. But these cells are present in the body at very low frequency. So how can you get enough of them and also get just the ones from a mixed population that you need just to protect the target organ and not bring down the immune system comprehensively? Uh, it's a very good question. So the answer is that the approach we've taken is we've uh, isolated this uh, specialised population of white cells from normal individuals uh, and expanded them in the test tube and expanded them by stimulating them with foreign antigens, is the word, the foreign proteins of a transplanted organ 
the ones that respond to the transplant foreign proteins, those ones selectively grow, and then you can make these cells expand uh, to very large numbers in the test tube in order then to infuse them back in adequate numbers in vivo. And because you have only expanded the ones that react to the transplant foreign proteins, then they're only going to depress the immune response to the transplant rather than to all the other environmental antigens. And when you put them back into the patient, in your case you were using animals as a model, obviously, what about the longevity of those cells? Do they last long enough to give a sustained immunosuppression selectively against the target organ? Are you going to have to keep repeating this process throughout the lifetime of that patient's graft in order to keep their immune system in check? So the experiments that we've just described were getting close to working in a patient because they were working with human cells and it was a model of human transplant rejection because these were little pieces of human skin that we were protecting with these human cells. So this was the human immune system working in an in vivo context, albeit it was uh, in a mouse. Earlier experiments we've done with mouse cells in a mouse, we've examined the question that you've just uh, asked, and we've looked at their longevity, and we can find these cells 80 days after we put them in. So you can find these cells for quite a long time, But actually what I would emphasize is that this kind of approach is really designed to tip the balance of the immune system towards tolerance, towards regulation, rather than rejection. And if you can tip that balance and reprogram the immune system, then actually it will tend to sustain that tolerance state itself, even if the cells that you initially put in uh, subsequently die. And as we'll be hearing later, regulatory T-cells may actually be a key to helping beat allergies too and could also work to uh, help treat autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Let's hope so. That was King's College London scientist Robert Leckler and he published that work this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Thank you, Kat. Now we've got the sweet solution to the problem of water purification. Actually, giving people clean water to drink is one of the big challenges in the 21st century. Even today, we think that roughly about half the world's population don't have access to fresh water. And also, the water they do have access to is pretty often contaminated with organic chemicals, including what are called persistent organic pollutants, POPs, which are actually very stable compounds, but very hard to remove. And uh, they're also, therefore, uh, risky if they're in the environment because they can cause other onward disease consequences, like there are things like trichloroethylene, which has been linked to cancer. But there's a really nice paper coming out this week. It's in the journal PNAS by Scott Lewis and his colleagues from the University of Kentucky. And what they've done is to produce a special filter membrane that actually is powered by sugar, glucose, and it uses the energy in the sugar to break down these chemicals in water that pass through the filter. So here's how it works. They've got two layers of the membrane, which is made of a special organic substance, and they have embedded into the upper layer of the membrane an enzyme called glucose oxidase. This glucose oxidase burns glucose, and it produces, when it breaks down glucose, hydrogen peroxide, effectively bleach, the stuff that you use to, to sterilise contact lenses, make teeth white and so on. Now that hydrogen peroxide passes through tiny pores in this upper membrane down into the second membrane where they have embedded tiny particles of iron, the metal. And this catalyses the breakdown or decomposition of that hydrogen peroxide and it produces what are called hydroxyl radicals, which are highly reactive chemicals which will attack any industrial pollutants which are present in the water and break them down. And when they did some studies just in the dish, they found that it could deal with 100% initially of the chemicals which are passing through the filter. And after about half an hour, it was still dealing with at least 70% of them. And when they took a sample of groundwater that was contaminated with things like trichloroethylene and trichlorophenol, uh, what they found is that it was still dealing with over 70% of the amounts of those chemicals that were in the groundwater. So what this shows is that you can make something very, very cheap, very, very simple, and run on a very, very simple energy source, glucose, which you can get pretty much anywhere, and you can use it to decontaminate water very effectively. So isn't that an amazing breakthrough, Kat? A sweet story indeed. Now, if you'd like to read up on anything that we've covered this week in the news, the references and the transcripts for all of our news stories are online at thenakedscientist.com slash news. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. Look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 
You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're talking about allergies later in the programme, so if you would like to get in touch with us, you have a question about allergies, the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. Kat. Now, in April 2010, a previously dormant volcano in Iceland, whose name I shall not try and pronounce, released a massive ash cloud that closed most of Europe's airspace and disrupted millions of people's travel plans. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson was one of those people stranded abroad, so she welcomed the chance to meet Oxford University's Professor David Pyle, for whom this cloud had an academic silver lining. I haven't previously worked on Iceland, but in this case... It was the opportunity of having the ash cloud move from Iceland across the UK and then out across northern Europe that gave us a once in a, well, probably a once in a lifetime opportunity to. Let's hope it's once in a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> once in 50 years, maybe. An opportunity to collect fine particles of ash that have travelled between 1,000 and 2,000 kilometres from the point of emission and before it actually reaches the ground. So we can use our observations to test our understanding of how we think these processes happen. How did you sample the ash then? Did you simply come up to the rooftop like where we are now and literally sort of wet your finger and put your finger out? Because I know that while I was stuck in Portugal, I was getting texts and emails from people saying, my car's covered in ash. We have a lab full of filters and pumps, which we normally take into the field. And in this case, the field area was Oxford, and the best place to do it was the top of the Department of Earth Sciences. And you used a sort of larger version of the pump that you've brought up to the roof with us now, which I've got to say is spectacularly unimpressive in that it, well, it's a large battery pack, about half the size of a bag of sugar, with a couple of big crocodile clips. Otherwise, it could be one of those paddles that people use to give oh, emergency yes. cardiac arrest treatment. So how does yes. it work? This is um, an air sampling pump. You can hear it. I'll just turn it off so you can uh, hear it. But we use this air sampling pump to suck air at about 20 litres a minute through a series of filters, and it's a way of collecting direct samples from the atmosphere. And do you have any of these particles still here in the, in the laboratory? Yes, we do. Yes. Well, in that case, I think we definitely ought to go and see them. The lab contains filters, each with evenly spaced dots, showing a range of different sized particles collected on the roof. These continue to be part of ongoing studies into the properties of ash particles. But David felt it was easier for me to observe the ash from a slightly more low-tech method of collection. These are actually just two pieces of sellotape, <laughs> which a colleague used to collect the volcanic ash from their car windscreen. Is that the large, well, compared to what else is on that bit of sellotape, the large dark grain that almost looks like a sort of black sugar or salt grain. No, in fact, those large grains will probably be bits of wood or something that's just carried around in the atmosphere. And it's kind of the, the pale brown background material. Oh, wow. So the stuff that I just thought was general background fluff yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. is actually all the ash. That's right, oh. yes. yes. I don't think we've ever had an opportunity quite like this, where we've had observations and samples collected from the volcano itself during the eruption, where we've had satellite measurements of how the ash cloud is then moves through the atmosphere from the volcano and then thousands of kilometres downwind. It's sort of an evolving experiment, effectively, isn't That's it? That's right, yes, yes. So we've got a great opportunity to use the measurements in the laboratory to work out whether the ash particles landed as single grains or as clots of grains all caught together. Why do you need to know that? It's actually very important both for understanding the hazard to aircraft and also for understanding whether there might be any tiny effect in terms of human health. Very fine particles between two and a half and five microns or so are actually small enough to be inhaled into the lungs. If those very fine particles actually have actually clumped together in the ash cloud then that clump of particles will behave as if it were a larger particle and it will then land on the ground after a thousand kilometres rather than after five thousand kilometres. And once it's landed on the ground there's a chance that the fine particles will then separate and you'll have a, a higher than expected concentration of very fine particles at ground level. This is one of the things we want to investigate. 
That was Professor David Pyle from the University of Oxford talking to Sue Nelson about the ongoing investigation of ash particles collected from the troublesome Icelandic volcano eruption last year. And you can find more Planet Earth online resources at www.thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani. We're talking allergy this week. And food allergies, it turns out, are relatively common. Figures we've seen from the US suggest that up to 8% of young children and perhaps 4 3.5% of adults are affected by them. In many cases, it's a bit more than a nuisance, but that's about all. But for some people, though, it can actually be a fatal problem. Uh, Pamela Ewan is with us from Addenbrooke's Hospital, where she's trying to develop a way to help people who have peanut allergies. Hello, Pam. Thanks for coming on the programme. Hello. First of all, for people who just have an allergy, what actually is allergy? What's going on chemically in their bodies? Well, in people with allergy, the problem is they've made an unwanted immune response, so they make allergic antibody, which under normal circumstances, at least in our civilised environment, westernised environment, we don't need. And so you first of all make this harmful antibody or unwanted antibody, and when you're then exposed to the protein to which this antibody is directed against, you get a reaction causing cells in the body to fire off, release a whole lot of chemicals which produce the symptoms. What are the antibodies that do that? And what are the chemicals that then unleash the unpleasant symptoms that we all associate with having an allergic reaction? Well, there's a whole range of things that can cause this, from things we breathe in like pollens or cat or dog allergens, dusts, uh, to foods, to drugs... You know, almost anything that is a protein can do this. And what's it binding onto? You said antibodies. What, what sort of antibodies and where are they? These antibodies, these um, allergic antibodies, are called IgE, and they are fixed onto cells in the body called mast cells, which are really surrounding every place in the body where you meet the outside world. So it's the eye, the lining of the nose, the lining of the airways into the lung, the lining of the gut and so on, but also in the skin. So it, they're a sort of defence. And when these IgE antibodies see the thing that they're reacting to, the thing you're allergic to, what do they then do? They link up and cause activation pathways in the cells, allowing chemicals, particularly histamine, which are stored in these cells in little granules, to be released. And this whole thing can happen really quickly. So say we were talking about cat allergy and you have cat IgE antibody within... 30 seconds to a minute of inhaling the cat allergen, getting it up your nose, getting it in your eye, it binds with this antibody, fires off the cell, and these mediators are released. Now, under normal circumstances, they're there to protect us, presumably these cells, and they wouldn't normally react to the things that people are reacting to when they have an allergy. They would be reacting to bad things to warn the body there is a bad thing coming, and so those mechanisms will be good under certain circumstances, but they just go into overdrive in people with allergy. Well, but in allergy, are, these antibodies are directed against common environmental allergens, which you should normally tolerate. So that, that's the primary problem. So why do people make them? We think it's because um, the immune system becomes reprogrammed, probably because you're not using this part of the immune system because it's mainly important to, in parasitic infections, so preventing you getting infections with various parasites, worms and so on. If you don't use it for that, it seems an allergy, um, you switch and use this pathway against allergens or proteins that should be normally tolerated. So why is it then that, I mean, I have a little bit of hay fever, uh, I will get itchy eyes and a runny nose, but I certainly won't get anaphylaxis, I won't have to be resuscitated. But somebody who has, say, a peanut allergy, I had somebody who lived in, in our house once, and we had to be very careful with where she stored her food and where we kept our food, because just a trace of peanut was enough to provoke this enormous and dramatic body reaction in her that could be fatal. Well, it depends on where the allergen, the, the thing you're allergic to, is getting to. So with um, pollen, with hay fever, you're breathing it in. It's in the air, so a little bit of it gets up your nose, gets in your eyes, and there it meets the allergic antibody and fires off the reaction. And most of it is probably filtered out in your nose, so very little gets into your lung. But in a few people, it could cause asthma if it has got down there. Peanut or foods get absorbed into the circulation quite quickly. So you, although you eat them, they rapidly get absorbed from your mouth. And so 
quite quickly, they're all over the body, and that's why you get these bad reactions. Do we know whether they really are becoming more common? It seems that everyone you meet these days either knows someone or themselves has some kind of dramatic allergy like this. Is it just that awareness has gone up, or are they much more common? No, there's a really well-documented increase. Uh, So there's a massive increase in the last 30 to 40 years, and even bigger increases in certain allergies in the last 10 to 15. But there are quite good studies in similar populations comparing incidence of diseases 30 or 40 years back and more recently, and there's, there's a substantial rise. So most of it is real. There will be a bit of better recognition. There will be a bit of people thinking they're allergic when they're not, but there is a a very big increase. So now we potentially have about one in three of our population in the UK have an allergy. Gosh, that's very high. Do you have any feeling for why that might be happening? Well, this is complex, but it's put simply, it's thought to be um, due to modern westernised lifestyle. So it's factors in our lifestyle. Infection or lack of infection may be an important component. There are probably lots of other things that we still haven't dissected out, but it could be a whole variety of things. We have very different diet. Um, We have different exposure to chemicals. There could be lots of reasons. I did read there was an association between being exposed to big doses of antibiotics under a certain threshold age, and this may have an impact on the kind of microorganisms that flourish in the gut, and they in turn educate the immune system, and this may distort the ability of the immune system to tell friend from foe for a while and therefore encourage allergies to establish. It could be that. A lot of these theories focus on lack of infection or antibiotics or other things in early childhood. What is also interesting, though, is that we are seeing much older people who have been fine all their lives, 16- and 17-year-olds, becoming allergic, and so you can't blame that on early programming. And what are you doing to try and help the people who you've been dealing with with these quite profound peanut allergies? Well, perhaps first of all to say peanut allergy is a very severe allergy or potentially very severe. So it's, it's the, of the food allergies, it's the one that is most likely to cause either fatal or near-fatal reactions. So it's a, it's a big problem. So it's a, a frightening diagnosis to have. And, and it's also quite hard to avoid peanuts, even if you're intending to. They're hidden in things. And so it's quite a difficult um, disease to manage. What we've um, done is we've tried to see if we could desensitise children with peanut allergy, in other words, switch off the allergy, really a cure we're aiming at. And what we've done is we've taken children with proven peanut allergy, we test them at the beginning to establish exactly how much of the peanut is needed before they kick in with an allergic reaction. We then give them uh, peanut by mouth. We use peanut flour, so that's obtained by crushing and defatting peanuts. Uh, So we give them peanut flour hidden in some other food, starting with really tiny doses, something like a three hundredth of a peanut, so way below what we know is their threshold for reaction. And then we very slowly step up, increasing the doses. And the way we do this is we have them up to the hospital once a fortnight. We give them a dose. They go home and take the same dose every day for a fortnight. They come back. We step up a bit, two more weeks on the same dose. And so it goes on until we get up to 800 milligrams, which is equivalent to about five whole peanuts. So by the end of this updosing regime, they're eating and tolerating five peanuts. Then they go on having five peanuts a day for ages. And then we do another challenge test where we give them 12 peanuts. And we do that at about six weeks after they've been on the maintenance dose. And then 30 weeks out, we try a really huge challenge where we give them 32 peanuts. And just very briefly to finish this off, Pam, not literally, obviously, um, can you tell us why is it then that they can have a whiff of peanut and it can be fatal or near fatal for them, but after this kind of therapy that you give to them, they are able to tolerate it? What is changing? Well, we're looking at that as, as we go along, and what we know so far is that they're allergic antibody, this IgE to peanut, has gone down. It hasn't gone away, but it's gone down quite a bit. And we know from other forms of desensitisation, say for pollen, the same thing happens. And we're also looking at other immunological mechanisms, including these T regulatory cells you were hearing about earlier in the programme, to see if we can show that the immune system is being reprogrammed from 
an immune response which is pro-allergy into one that is anti-allergy. Terrific. Well, it's fantastic work. Thank you very much for coming in and sharing it with us. That's Pam Ewan. She is at Adambrook's Hospital where she's doing that work. Kat? Yes. Now, as we've uh, just been finding out, allergic conditions have gone up in recent years and they were virtually unheard of before the 19th century. And this has led some people to suggest what's known as the hygiene hypothesis. Leading an overly hygienic life, as we do nowadays, may increase the tendency for the immune system to react to things that it would normally ignore. Now, to tell us more, we're joined by Professor Rick Mazels from Edinburgh University. Hello, Rick. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for coming on the show. What we want to find out from you is what's what's the basis of this hygiene hypothesis? What's your take on it? Well, it's essentially saying that the immune system uh, that we have now evolved in the presence of uh, many infectious organisms over eons of time and was actually be- is best adapted to uh, operate and protect us in the presence of various parasites and other infections. And as we may mention in a moment, some of these infectious organisms are a little bit immunosuppressive, dampen the immune system for their own protection. And in the, in the absence of those parasites and those microorganisms, the immune system now overshoots. So you, you have instances perhaps, and this is the hypothesis, we have instances where the immune system is overreactive and unnecessarily targets Uh, innocuous environmental antigens, otherwise known as allergens, as we've just been hearing from Pam. So you mean the immune system hasn't hasn't got enough to do with itself? It's got too much time on its hands. Yes. yes, So it's reacting to all sorts of things. Idle hands. (laughs) Exactly. So what what things, what infections are you particularly interested in? Well, I got interested in the parasitic infections, the the, uh, helminth worm infections that were mentioned a moment ago. Uh Roundworms and schistosomes, which live in in the bloodstream. Because we notice in tropical populations there's much lower levels of allergy, but also there's a paradox that the, these helminth worms uh, generate quite a strong IgE response, and IgE is the antibody responsible for allergy. So there was something else going on. What's going on, we thought, was that the parasites were able to block the overt allergic reaction. So then um, a colleague of mine worked about 10 years ago with some school children in Africa and came up with a very a seminal result, which was school kids with the helminth worms had less allergy than those who uh, were free of infection. So basically having worms meant that your immune system had something to do. It was, it was focusing on the worms and not on having an allergy. Interpretation. But the other interpretation is that the parasites are doing something actively to dampen... Uh, an allergic reaction. So what so, do you think they're doing? What we, we wanted to do is to see whether there was a causal relationship. Was it, was it um, the presence of the parasites that actually protected, actively protected against allergy? And we showed that in, in the laboratory in mice. And then um, going further, we were able to show uh, that our new friends, these Tregs, these regulatory T-cells, which are, as uh, Robert Lechler called them, the policemen of the immune system, they were preventing allergy in mice so that parasites were able to expand the body's own mechanism that protects us from allergy. So the immune system is using these cells to sort of to let the parasites get away with it and it's occupying them enough so that they're not mounting allergic reactions to things. It's a, I suppose it's a question of half full or half empty. It's either the, the immune system is choosing to do this because the, it, it protects the body from allergy or it's the parasite manipulating the, the human immune system in its own interest but in, at the same time it's actually having a beneficial effect. But is it the case that it's just parasites that do this or are there other, other dirty things in our dirty world that might be doing this to us? I think it's much broader, and I think what we've found is a point of principle. And as um, Pam was, was saying, how the, uh, f- the rapid rise in allergy is really the last few decades. And, of course, the Western populations reduced its parasite loads uh, many, uh, many years before that. So I think what we'll find is that in the environment and in the sort of global uh, spectrum of different infectious organisms, there are some particular species which actually have a beneficial effect and these 
are not necessarily dirty. <laughs> I mean, some of them may well be uh, natural commensal microorganisms which are expanded or decreasing because of our diet. That's also been mentioned. I think we have to take a, a global view of all these different influences. Because mm, obviously you don't want to infect someone with worms just to make their hay fever better. How do you think you can take some of the discoveries you've made forward to, to make maybe viable preventive or, or treatments for, for people with allergies? Well, what we're aiming to do is to reproduce the effect of parasite infection without having to have a live parasite within you. Nice. And we've been able to do this firstly by collecting these regulatory T-cells and show that these will protect mice uh, from allergy. And now we are isolating active substances from the parasite that um, themselves expand these regulatory T-cells in the lab with the objective then of being able to replace live infection with a active principle from the parasite itself. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I really look forward to, uh, to getting the results of that as an allergy sufferer. So thanks very much. That's Professor Rick Maisels from Edinburgh University. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're talking about the science of allergies this week. And one of the things that can help to get rid of allergies is to have a breath of fresh air, as Mira and Dave found out for this week's Naked Engineering. This week, Dave and I are exploring the process of air filtration. Dave, what in the air would we want to really filter out? Well, it depends what you want to do with the air. If you want to just make it more breathable, you might want to filter out the big particles, which would go up your lungs and possibly get some of the pollen out there, which you might be allergic to. Whereas if you want to make a computer chip, you're going to want to get virtually everything out down to the tiny, tiny particles, micron size, sort of things you get made in a diesel engine. And well, another industry where this is important is the pharmaceutical industry. So to find out more about air filtration here, we've come along to process engineering company WSPCEL in Coventry to meet Chloe Ag, the building services engineer here. Now, Chloe, how is a system set up, say, in a pharmaceutical factory? What does an air handling unit look like? An air handling unit is a big grey box. Usually they're about the same size as a static caravan. The purpose of these is to pull the air in from the outside, clean it up, make sure it's the right temperature, the right humidity and pump it all into the pharmaceutical factory. And as this air is getting drawn in, what kind of particles are you wanting to remove? First of all, we need to make sure that no birds can get inside the air handling unit, so we have a bird mesh for that. And then slightly smaller objects, we need to make sure that there are no flies or other insects that can get in, so we have an insect mesh. And then the next stage is a panel filter. We have one right here. It's made of cotton fibres and wire mesh and it prevents any large particles from getting into the AHU, the air handling unit. So it's a square-shaped panel um, and it's got cotton fibre kind of material going through but it's, it's pleated in a, a vertical way, so it's pleated going all the way up through the um, filter. That's right. The filter is zigzagged along to make sure that there's extra surface area for all the air to pass through nice and slowly. Because if the air is rushing through, you're likely to sort of force larger particles through than if it's just moving gently, it's likely to get jammed in the filter. If the air is moving more slowly through it, there's more opportunity for the particles to get trapped. It also means that it takes less energy to pull the air through. So at this stage, you've really removed like birds, insects and you know large particles of things like dust as well. But you still have very small unwanted particles that you want to re remove. What kind of smaller particles do you want to remove and, and just how small are these? The particles could be anything down to the size of about 0.1 micron and they can be microbes and bacteria and all sorts of harmful things you wouldn't want in a pharmaceutical environment. So that's a particle which is about a five hundredth of a human hair across. Can you still filter them by essentially a sieve process like the other filters? If we tried to filter out those particles using the sieve process, we'd have to have such a densely matted filter that it would block almost instantly and would take loads of energy to pass the air through. So how are these particles stopped and what kind of filter is used? We use a high-efficiency particular air filter, or a HEPA filter. Those filters are quite different to the panel filters, and they're usually made from glass fibre. We use glass fibres rather than cotton fibres because they're smaller and you can get a higher density of them so that the small holes between them are smaller than they are on the cotton filter. The filters are made so they've got lots and lots of surface areas. They might be a bag or they might be, again, zigzags like the panel filter. But if you're not then just sieving out these particles, how are you getting rid of things like microbes and bacteria? The particles are captured in one of three different ways. So it might be through impaction, interception or diffusion. The larger particles tend to be captured by impaction. That means that they collide with the fibre, even though the hole next to the fibre might have been 
larger than the particle itself. Interception means that the particle passes near to a fibre and is attracted to it and gets stuck. And diffusion happens only with the very, very small particles. And it works kind of like Brownian motion. The small particles don't move in a straight line through the filter. They move around in a random motion. And because this means they take longer to pass through the filter, it gives them more opportunities to get stuck to the fibres in other ways. So all three of these processes are basically based on a particle moving through the filter and being attracted to a fibre and actually just sticking to it. What about the structure of these HEPA filters? Um, So we've established that they can be made of glass fibres in order to capture particles, but there are also different types. So we've got two filters here in front of us, and one's very... um, It's got these pleats going backwards, kind of away from us, but... Putting my hand just inside, the material is extremely soft. It feels just a bit like the lining is just cotton wool or something. That's the kind of texture that it is. That filter is a fabric filter, so it's still made of glass fibres, but it's sort of like the loft insulation that you get at home. Nice and soft, and it gives lots of different places for the particles to get stuck to. Next to it, there's a very rigid structure. Whilst this first structure had over uh, 10 pleats, this one now one's got about four or five now, and it's a, it's a lot more rigid. What's the material here? This is a paper version of the glass fibre, and although it looks like there are only four pleats, actually each of those pleats has got several hundred pleats within it. So you get a larger surface area into the same space, which means you can push the air through more slowly, thus saving energy, I guess. That's right, and also with the rigid filter, because it doesn't move in the air, it doesn't take any energy out of the air. How long do these filters really last? They must get blocked up at some point. What happens when they do get blocked up, and also, I guess, how do you know when they are? We make sure we monitor the pressure at either side of the filter, and that tells us as the filter's slowly getting blocked up, because the pressure drop across it will be larger. Depending on what air you're filtering that could be anything from three months to a year when you do need to change it though it might be full of quite dangerous pharmaceutical ingredients so you usually have to incinerate them how efficient are they at removing the unwanted particles the filters we've got in front of us would remove 99.995 percent of all small particles that is a, a very high degree of accuracy so what would the future challenges or aims even be i guess to make these even better as filters to reduce the amount of energy that they use. At the moment, the air handling units that these filters are in use about 15 kilowatts for the fan. That's just to pull the air through the air handling unit and into the pharmaceutical factory. But they could also be potentially using around 200 kilowatts of cooling to make the air cold enough to pull the moisture out to do dehumidification. And after that, you need to heat the air up to make sure that all of the occupants of the rooms are nice and warm and comfortable. So you could be using another 80 or 90 kilowatts just for that. So in total, you're looking at around 300 kilowatts for one air handling unit. So that's several family cars running flat out continuously 365 days a year. We take into account energy efficiency a lot in our designs now. The real challenge is to be able to design a pharmaceutical factory where there's a nice, safe, clean environment for manufacturing, but one that isn't using the same energy as several family cars continuously. Chloe Ag, who's the process engineer at WPS CEL, and she was showing Mira and Dave how to remove even the smallest contaminants from our air supply. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arnie. We're talking allergy this week, and our guests are Dr Pamela Ewan from Addenbrooke's Hospital and Professor Rick Mazels, who's from Edinburgh University. Kat? We've got a question for Rick, I guess, here, and this is from Twitter. The lovely Puffles2010 says, why isn't there a vaccine for hay fever? And also Nishnaya on Facebook says, is it possible to get rid of an allergy? Well, on the first question, um, vaccines boost and stimulate the immune system. And and the problem with hay fever is an overreactive, unnecessarily active immune system. So really, we need an anti-vaccine. And I guess because it's easier to start an immune response and stop one, um, unlikely ever to be able to have a single shot. Um, But that's, as Pam was telling you, uh, maybe a more softly, softly uh, approach could work. Pam, anything to add to that? Well, there is a a special desensitising vaccine that you can use for pollen allergy, which works quite well. So that's that's not a normal sort of vaccine, as Rick was saying, which would stimulate the immune system, but there is an allergy vaccine which can work. Is that sort of using the same principle as your gently, gently, softly, softly approach Um, to peanut stimulation? No, it's doing it by injection. So it's giving an injection into the skin, so a systemic sort of stimulation to the body. But otherwise, similar principle, yes. 
Got a question on Twitter from African ABC who says, I'm allergic to my cat. I take antihistamines. Is it likely that the allergy will get worse or more severe with time? I suppose that's a very good question because people wonder if they suppress the symptoms with antihistamines, will the body then react more so that even though the antihistamines are there, you've got a, a worse reaction going on? I don't think the anti no, I don't think that would make it worse. So he'd be fine to carry on with antihistamines, but Cat allergy can get worse if you constantly expose yourself to cat, providing your allergy is on the severe side. So it can get worse and worse, so it's best to minimise exposure. But the opposite of that is that people with very mild cat allergy can actually be OK, providing they have constant but low exposure to their own cat. Because Kimberly Willingham-Lee says, is there an approved method of treating cat allergies? Would that therefore be exposure therapy? You have two cats instead of one. Buy another one. Well, you can be desensitised to cats, but it doesn't work very well. But we do sometimes do this for vets or people where it's very important to absolutely get it under control. But the standard treatment, which is the first line and usually works very well, is a nasal spray, eye drops and non-sedative antihistamines. So there's a very good treatment that will work. Thank you, Pam. Um, Rick, I've got a question here from Manal Javid who says, why didn't humans just evolve through allergies? Well, we, we evolved, as I was saying earlier, to tune our immune system in the presence of different infectious organisms. And in a way, allergies have resulted because we're no longer in the environment in which we evolved. So I suppose um, because allergies are so recent and human population is no longer being uh, selected by natural selection, uh, I don't think we are going to evolve through allergies. And talking of evolving and growing and things, um, Pam, Stephanie Barton-Milner is wondering, um, do children typically grow out of food allergies if they have one? Well, that depends on the food allergy. So if you had egg or milk allergy as a young child, there's a very good chance of growing out. But if you had peanut allergy, only a tiny minority of the very mild ones might grow out. So it's very dependent on which food we're talking about. Do you know why? We don't know for sure why this is, but we've done some research on egg allergy, looking at those who resolve and those who persist, and we can see changes in the immune system. So the development of these T regulatory cells and various chemicals they produce occurs in the children who grow out of egg allergy. So it may be that it's somehow easier with certain foods like egg and milk to develop the right sort of immunity to grow out and perhaps that's due to small amounts of these things being in foods. Kat, over to you. So we've got a question here from Phil Reynolds who says, how do you know if you have an allergy and how do you work out what you're allergic to? You you, you should go and see a doctor I think first but you would go by the symptoms uh, and depending, the symptoms would tell you what disease and then that disease may or may not be allergic and in order to work out that you've got to look at circumstances of exposure, when the allergy comes on, it's obviously easy if it's something like a cat, you go near it you get symptoms, it's not so easy if it's something like house dust mite which is you're exposed to most of the time. But by teasing out the circumstances, you can have a good idea. And then that could be backed up by allergy tests, which can show you've got this allergic antibody to whichever substance you're looking at. And what would be the sort of typical symptoms of allergies? Because it's it's presumably different from a food allergy to a cat allergy. Exactly. Well... Allergy in the nose, eyes or lungs, so rhinitis and asthma, that you would get sneezing, itchy eyes, blocked nose, runny nose and asthma. With a food allergy, you might get an acute reaction with rash and swelling through to something much more severe or chronically you could get eczema due to a food. I've got an interesting question here. Titus Thesira on Facebook says, what can mums do to reduce the chances of their children developing allergies? Uh, well, it's, that's really difficult to answer. Um, I don't know if he's asking about breastfeeding, but breastfeeding is thought to protect against allergy. Uh, we don't know about when the right time to wean is, and there is a lot of research going on at the moment to look and see whether early introduction of foods might actually be better and reduce the incidence of food allergy rather than late weaning. And talking of foods, uh, there's an email here from Neil Denham, 1978, and he says, does local honey alleviate hay fever as it's alleged to do? 
I don't think so. I, I, uh, we hear quite a lot of people say this, but there's no scientific evidence, as far as I know, showing why. I mean, people think they're they're eating pollen, and that might help, but the amounts of pollen are, will be pretty low. We've got a question here from Doman Puncher, or Puncher, um, not sure, um, on Facebook, and says, does being prone to allergies have a genetic factor, and how have these genes survived in the human population? Why haven't we just bred them out? Perhaps Rick, Rick would be a good one to answer that. Well, I think some of those genes probably were preserved in the human population because they protected people from uh, infections such as these helminth parasites. So the other side of the coin is that the same reactions that now give us allergies, um, I think Pam mentioned this at the very beginning, uh, are protective against some parasites. Pam, anything to add to that? Yes, that's, that's a good answer. I mean, the, there does seem to be some genetic basis, but it, it's quite loose. We know if one parent has allergy, the child is more likely to, and if both parents have allergy, the child is even more likely to. But it's quite hard to pin it down to a specific gene, so there are certain genetic associations, but it, it's, it's quite loose. And just to finish off, here's a real stinky one. Uh, Richard Bentley says on Twitter, as peanuts are legumes and not nuts, does it follow that if you're allergic to nuts, you should avoid peanuts as well? Well, uh, the answer to that's a bit complex, but peanut allergy and tree nut allergy, in other words, the non-legume nuts, occur commonly in the same people, but you can have them separately. So if we get a child with one nut allergy, we will say avoid all nuts because we know they're likely to go on to develop other nut allergies. Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for uh, in terms of your questions, but we have one very big question still to answer. Kat? It's time for our question of the week. The lovely Diana has her eye on the fuel gauge. This week, how many visits to the petrol station does it take to save the most money? Hi, this is Paul from Waldingham, Surrey. I was wondering if there was an optimum level to which you should aim to fill your car's petrol tank. In other words, after what level is the car simply using energy to carry around excess petrol? Or alternatively, do the vehicle manufacturers make the capacity of the petrol tank the perfect size so that the car isn't using energy to simply carry around unnecessary petrol? Thanks for a great show. Apparently you can go an average of 28 miles between each petrol station in the UK. So how much petrol would you need? Hello, I'm James Painter. I'm one of the engineering leads on the Bloodhound Landspeed Record Project. Um, we're at the moment designing and developing a vehicle to set a new Landspeed Record and we're targeting uh, 1,000 miles an hour. Well, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, really, once you're carrying around more fuel than you actually need to get from A to B um, or to your next petrol station, you're carrying around more fuel, essentially, than you need. So yeah, I suppose essentially non-optimum. But certainly it does vary depend on you know, how far you want to go, how quickly you want to get there, and how much you enjoy sweating when the low fuel light comes on. I mean, certainly in terms of vehicles and automotive manufacturers, a lot of, sort of family-sized fuel tanks tend to be sort of 40 to 60 litres, and, and really that's driven by giving vehicles a reasonable range, and also in terms of the packaging space that the manufacturer has actually got to play with uh, in terms of getting the fuel tank located. So when you are carrying around this, this additional fuel, yeah, I mean, certainly starting and stopping, accelerating and braking that fuel is a bit probably more of a penalty within sort of town driving rather than maybe when you're on the motorway and you're actually uh, popping up to speed and you're just doing a, a constant speed along the motorway. So it's best to only fill up with what you need, but this could lead to hundreds of visits to the petrol station, which might be out of the way and therefore add extra mileage. Town and motorway driving can affect it, and if your petrol tank is full, then you'd be lugging around the equivalent of an extra 50 to 60 kilo person, according to Dr Zowie on the forum. And as several other forumers commented, a good set of tyres and a good driving technique could probably save you more fuel in the long run. Next week, when does wind chill make you hot? Hi, Naked Scientists. My name is Paul from Atlanta, and my question is this. How come commercial airliners and many other airplanes give very cold services when flying, and re-entering spacecraft and many supersonic jets get very hot surfaces? At what speed does the wind chill effect give way to the heating effect? And how fast would I need to ride my bicycle through cold weather to maintain a room temperature? Answers to Chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can write on the forum, which is at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or you can Twitter us with at Naked Scientists. 
That's the hot stuff, as always, Diana O'Carroll, with our question of the week. And if you've got any thoughts yourself on how fast we need to move to start warming up, do drop us an email or post on our forum. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Kat, thanks. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Pamela Ewan, Rick Mazels, and our production team, Tom Simpkins, Diana O'Carroll, Ben Vowsler, Miracentha Lingham, and Dave Ansell. Next week, we're at the cutting edge of metallurgy. We'll find out what's happening at the molecular level at a blacksmith's forge and the science of superalloys, the components inside jet engines that mean that they can tolerate conditions well above their melting points. How do they do that? Join us next week to find out. In the meantime, if you've got any questions for them for us, send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a great week and we'll see you next time at The Blacksmiths. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. 